It's August 27th, 2020. This is Rook. two of our series looking back at the Pahlavi dynasty and the seeds of the Islamic revolution on this 40th anniversary summer of the death of the Shah of Iran. On our last episode, Dr. Abbas Milani joined me to discuss history, new revelations, and historical revisionism when it comes to the Shah through the prism of 2020. Today, two historians with different approaches. First up, Andrew Scott Cooper on his recent book that has made a splash about the fall of the Pahlavis, and then Muhammad Amini reflecting on the Shah from a proponent of Mossadegh. This is conversations from to and about the Iranian diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rock. to episode number 39 of Rook. Umidwar hastam ke zendegi tun khub washe in hafte. So poetic. Let's just, I just say things to see what Shia's reaction is. <laughs> He's laughing. I don't know what that means. It did. I think it was entirely sound. I'm making sure that everybody is having a good life this week. Oh, so what did you say? Omidvaram? Omidvaram ke tun khub washe. Wow. In hafte. In hafte. Wow. What do you mean, wow? That was a big progress for you. <laughs> <laughs> Your Farsi is a Farsi is a big progress for you. But I'm going to say something that I'm going It's a very big show, this one. We have historian Andrew Scott Cooper joining me from Brussels in just a few moments. And later in the program, historian Mohammed Amini. A bevy of historians. This is on the heels of Dr. Abbas Milani, who was on the program for an in-depth 90 minutes with me on Monday. Uh, lots of discussion about that. The whole Rook in-studio team, as you can hear, has gathered. Groovy Shia, hello. Hello, Azam. Captain Rezai Aziz. Hello, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and the fabulous Keon. Hello, Jian. Hello, Keon. <laughs> How was your week, your half day? Uh, my half day was good, just... Again, killing myself at the gym. I'm actually going to a shooting range tonight for the first time. Whoa! Yeah, okay. I'm real. excited about that. What? Uh, and why are you doing that? I just I've always wanted to. And to I shoot things. Yes, All I right. think I'll be really good at it. In this era, it's scary of, how of good I am. Gun culture. You you you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you see the different voices of Ray. <laughs> People with different interests. Uh, okay. okay, all right. But uh, but you're excited about yes, it. Yes, I am. Empowered, yeah. in fact. I think I'll be really good at it. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of announcements uh, before we uh, get to our guests in our letters of the week. First of all, we've launched a new feature called The Rook Minute. This is where we take a, a minute from one of our interviews and um, post it with, uh, uh, with a, a title page on our Instagram. Uh, we just did uh, a minute from our Hamid Ismailoun, actually a heartbreaking minute from Hamid Ismailoun uh, from uh, our first episode, actually four months ago, and put it on Instagram. On Instagram and on 
Telegram. That's right. So you mm. can see it on Instagram and Telegram, or, or as I know it's said in Farsi, Telegram. Telegram yeah, it is. In case people don't know what we're talking about, Telegram. <laughs> is it Telegram or Telegram? Telegram. Telegram. Sounds more authentic. Telegram. Uh, yeah, so we now have a Telegram. Uh, what is it? A page? A platform? No, it's a channel. The it's channel. A we have a Telegram channel. channel. People can subscribe. At or Rook join. Media, right? That's right. That's right. That's Captain Reza. They're and, the voice uh, of Captain Reza. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Not to be confused with the voice of Gian. Yes. Never. Never. But uh, also, Erfan's uh, episode in uh, subtitle version of it is on our Telegram. That's right. With the Farsi Zirnavis, with the, far, right. uh, the Persian subtitles, the Erfan episode also on Telegram. If your choice is the Telegram uh, platform. Uh, I mean, if you're listening to this, you're listening to it on another platform or already on Telegram. Mm-hmm. So all of this is kind of redundant. But maybe somebody's listening to it on Spotify and they're like, wow, I love tele- I love Telegram, Telegram. <laughs> That's right. And I want to go and listen to it on that instead, right? <laughs> yeah, and some people don't want to stream it. They want to download it. So it makes it easier for them. We're oh. just trying to make it easy for all people right. to find us. On the next episode of Rook, legendary Iranian-American broadcaster Homasar Shar will join me. She is a she is a wonder. She's been a journalist, uh, an interviewer, a reporter uh, for fifty-five years, including for about twenty years in Iran before she left quite tragically in nineteen seventy-eight. Uh, we'll get into that story. What happened at the Kahan newspaper where she worked? Um, I'm so happy and honored to have her coming on the show for a sort of lifetime interview. Homasar Shar joining us on the next episode of Rook. Also, uh, a special shout out on this episode again to Mo Rahimian. Mo Rahimian and Inshufin. So, Mo is a guy who came to the West about 20 years ago, rebuilt his life here to become an expert in financial planning, life, health, and securing wealth and insurance. His company also deals with travel insurance. So he's made it his goal to take much of the profits he makes from Inshufin and put them back into the Iranian community and the diaspora. This is the part I wanted you to hear, Mm, He says... I don't need to drive a Mercedes Benz if I can support our culture. Why are you uh, directing that at me? I'm just saying. I actually don't drive a Mercedes, uh, so what do you well, got to say just, to that? I just wanted you to know. That's what <laughs> that's, he said. That's very, yeah. that's kind. That's, yeah. We have Mo Rahimian. Thank you to Mo and Inshufin for supporting Iranian events, arts and culture, this episode of Rook as well. So, you know, you can hire a financial advisor and do something good for the community I, if you hire Mo Rahimian, although he may not have a Benz, Kian. Damn, then I'll go <laughs> elsewhere. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Is that true? That I, I've, I've spoken to a lot of Iranians, and to them, it's like like real estate agents. They will drive a Benz because they they think it portrays it's them better as, for business. Yeah, it yeah. is. BMW and Mercedes. Yeah, those yeah. are. The, it makes them look successful, so then people will do business with it's them. A strange element of our it's very uh, sad outgrowth of our yeah. diaspora culture yeah. in some circles, of course, mm. in some. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. What, so, what do you drive though? I'd things? rather not say, Reza. <laughs> <laughs> what do you drive? I know. Since you're asking. I ride oh. bike. Shia rides Shia. a bike. I love yeah. that. That's sweet. All right. Uh, I know we got a lot of feedback on the last episode with Dr. Milani, and uh, we're going to get to the letters of the week in a little bit, right? Yes. The fabulous Keon. See you soon, Captain Reza, Groovy Shia. Let's get to our first guest. Iranian contemporary history is probably the most contentious subject among Iranians and people of Iranian descent, and perhaps never more so than on the 40th anniversary of Mohammad Reza Shah's passing. 
As we have been discussing this week, whether you are into politics or not, the fateful events of 1979 have profoundly impacted your lives, even if, like me, you were a kid during the revolution or maybe you were born after it. On Monday, we heard from Dr. Abbas Milani and his perspective 10 years after the release of his detailed book called The Shah. My first guest today is a non-Iranian who has dared to also investigate and publish a book focused on the most debated figure in Iranian affairs. Andrew Scott Cooper did his PhD in U.S.-Iran studies. He is an historian, an analyst, and the author of two books on the history of the modern Middle East. His first, The Oil Kings, How the U.S., Iran, and Saudi Arabia Changed the Balance of Power in the Middle East. It provides readers with a comprehensive account of America's relations with oil producers, Iran and Saudi Arabia, during the 1970s energy crisis. His second book, The Fall of Heaven, The Pahlavis and the Final Days of Imperial Iran, came out in 2016 and explores the downfall of the Shah of Iran from the perspectives of family members, courtiers, revolutionaries, and diplomats. On this 40th anniversary month of the death of the Shah, whilst in exile in Egypt, Professor Cooper seems like another most relevant voice to hear from. And right now, Andrew Scott Cooper joins me from Brussels, Belgium. Hello, sir. Hello. Thank you so much for for inviting me to to discuss the Shah today. Thank you so much for doing this, Andrew. There is uh, so much to get to when it comes to the Shah. Let me start uh, with you. <laughs> it would be mm-hmm. absurd to suggest history can only be written by those of a certain background or ethnicity, but it is interesting that a guy named Andrew Scott Cooper from New Zealand did his PhD in Iran-U.S. studies and now has a book about the Pahlavi dynasty and, of course, the end of it. Why did you gravitate towards writing about Iran and the Shah? Well, I was uh, I was also a boy in the 1970s, and I was uh, nine years old when the revolution happened. I remember watching the big crowds come out on the streets on TV around uh, December, Christmas time, 1978, and it was also that was around the time that I began reading history books, and uh, I became sort of really obsessed with the whole study of history. I studied history at university. There was no Middle East history uh, in New Zealand. Uh, there were no contemporary studies uh, of that sort. But by the time I was living in the United States in 2005, 2006, I was working uh, in office jobs in New York. I was really unhappy with my career and I decided to test myself to essentially say, well, you know, if you think you can do a better job than the other historians, then you have to you have to prove it to yourself. So I gave myself a year to uh, to do background research and see if there was some part of the revolutionary narrative that had been overlooked by other scholars. And I was uh, fortunate to be the first person to access the archive of General Brent Scowcroft, who was the um, national security advisor to President Ford. And he was Kissinger's deputy under Nixon. And by accessing his papers, I came across these raw transcripts of U.S.-Iran relations, and in particular, the Shah's intimate conversations with Presidents Nixon and Ford and the senior advisors. Those papers really led me to um, start looking at the oil relationship between the United States and Iran, and in particular, I wondered if turmoil in the oil markets in the 19, late 1970s had in, in any way contributed to instability in Iran and possibly 
contributing to the collapse of the Pahlavi dynasty. So out of that inquiry came my first book, The Oil Kings. It's interesting, I can only imagine, for uh, an audience that we have that perhaps is largely people somehow connected to or of Iranian descent um, to hear a, a, what we say, a Khadiji guy, like a, a you know a non-Iranian guy, <laughs> even though we're all, I'm Khadiji, I mean, I grew up outside Iran, uh, but, uh, but, but somebody of non-Iranian descent um, working in this, in this field and taking this deep dive, as I call it. But you say something interesting in the book that actually makes a lot of sense. You say that for some of your primary source Iranian interviewees, those who were on the front lines while you were researching for this book and when you were doing interviews for this book, that it was actually an asset or somehow an advantage for you to be an outsider, a New Zealand-born historian. How so? I think the biggest asset I had was to be non-Iranian. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that uh, many of the people who um, knew the Shah best and worked with him distrust uh, the Iranian intellectual class and the, the bitter differences, ideological differences that really caused so much, so many problems while the Shah was in power have actually continued all the way through over the past 40 years. So they had also, they, they felt that it wouldn't matter what they said to an Iranian-born historian or scholar, their words would somehow be manipulated or phrased in a way that would that would reflect badly on on the period and the Shah. I mean, I I think as an outsider, I was able to do things like um, not only uh, interview the Shabanu and the family members and members of the entourage, but I was able to travel to Iran and uh, I, I did a short term sabbatical uh, in Gom uh, as as a guest of one of the universities there. Actually, a condition of my visa to go to Iran was that I had to go to Gom, and I had to do a short-term sabbatical on Shia studies. Interesting. Um, that turned out to be a tremendous uh, asset for me. It really was a fantastic experience. So, on the one hand, I'm working with the family and interviewing the family members and their closest intimates, and then on the other hand, I can go to Iran and I can be in Gom, where, where the revolution started, and I my teachers were religious people. They were turbans. And then I was able to go to uh, Paris and interview Mr. Bani Saad, who is a friend of no one, really. Um, I spent an interesting afternoon with him. And then the fourth part of the of the square is, is I was I was able to talk to the Americans. They also opened up to me. So it's it's been an outsider. It's been a non not being a non-Iranian, but it's also been someone who knows how to listen and someone who I think has some diplomatic skills, which I've had for most of my most of my career. I think I worked at the United Nations uh, when I was very young, and then at Human Rights Watch. So I I was trained as a researcher very early on. So everything for me, the, the whole story of the two books for me has also been a personal journey into the heart of contemporary Iranian history. Well, I can only imagine that now that you've put this book out, you're aware that 
pretty much everything you say will be judged one way or another by, by, <laughs> by people who are, are, are listening and, and have opinions about the show. And I, and I guess I, I should, as we start to get into the details of your book um, and mm-hmm. on this 40th anniversary summer, uh, marking the death of the Shah of Iran and following the interview with uh, Dr. Abbas Milani on Monday, I mean, it's, it seems like an odd question to ask a historian because I, I suspect I would I know the answer that you'll give, but how objective are you would be the question. On the cover of the of, of this book, The Fall of Heaven, at least the, the edition I have, there's a, a positive blurb from the Washington Post. It's a review of your book, but it also says a sympathetic nuanced portrait. Sympathetic. And to be sure now, it is impossible to discuss any major leader of the 20th century, let alone one that was toppled in a popular revolution without expecting the character to be polarizing. Um, so you would know going into this that any portrait of the Shah is going to have naysayers on one side or the other. But do you agree with the sympathetic assessment? And if so, did you enter into writing this book with a particular idea about the Shah? The understanding I had, the background I had, was really from Oil Kings, the f- my f- my first book, which had really changed the way I thought about the Shah. The Shah comes across in these American documents from the 1970s that were obviously classified for, for 30 years. He comes across as a, a, a as a nationalist, as someone who's very distrustful of the Americans, but that was mainly focused on foreign defense and petroleum policy. Looking at the Shah internally, um, all I had to work with were was a body of literature that had portrayed the Shah as this, frankly, as a as either a coward or as a, a monster. So you can imagine trying to square the circle between a coward and a monster. That these narratives have been baked in since the early 1980s, actually since the late 1970s, I think. So I I went and I did actually go in with a with a a, a, a really a, a blank slate and I remember one of the Shah's uh, people who knew him very well told me a story that I found confounding in, in it it about how gentle he was as an individual that this was a very shy man he was uh, someone who absolutely abhorred bloodshed. And so I heard that and I was listening to people telling me these stories about how he was so shy that actually he couldn't look you in the eyes. And then I was trying to square that with the human rights situation in Iran. And when I I learned that the numbers of executions and imprisonments had been vastly inflated in the 1970s, I, I began to see that there was a real problem here with the narrative that we had been working with for, for 30 years, 35 years, and with the reality of the man. I, in terms of being sympathetic towards the Shah, I developed real sympathy for him in his last year, especially. I think that that is uh, an epic tragedy, what happened in 1978. And I sort of defy anyone to look at his story and not have some sympathy with a man who is dying and is slowly losing everything he's spent his entire life working towards. I mean, it is a, it really is something out of the the Persian Book of Kings. Let me pick up on some of those points one at a time. Uh, the his personality, the shyness, and and the human rights situation. Um, first, you you quote the Shah quite prominently. I think you quote him twice in the book, saying, "Ingratitude is the prerogative of the people." Why did that particular comment stick out for you? 
he was basically saying, I think, that um, it's the people's right to decide whether they want me in the country or not. I'm not going to stay in Iran if, if they don't want me. And I know that many Iranians who live outside Iran blame him for walking away. They say, well, he, he left us. He essentially, when he walked out the door, he doomed us to a life in exile, which is not entirely true because actually the Shah was one of the last people to leave the ship in 1979, January 79. It had already collapsed. Um, he stayed on until he was trying, because he was trying to form a, a provisional government. But I think that he, it's an interesting comment because he was, he was saying that the people ultimately will be the ones who judge what happens to me and it's their right they they can be ungrateful there is a there is a hint of arrogance there though isn't there where he's talking about the people being ungrateful for what he's done to them in my research and interviews i uh it did come across that he was he was very i think bitterly disappointed in the turn that the iranian middle class in particular took in the late 1970s um and he felt that that they would live to regret this. And there is a wonderful quote in the book where he says at some point, uh, one of his courtiers comes into his into the, his office in yes. late 1978 and says, Your Majesty, they're tearing your statues down. And he said, he says, I'm not worried because one day they will put my statues up again. So he, had, he took the long view of history as well, which I also took, found very interesting. Uh, you you say in the book, um, it is an interesting quotation, they'll put my statues back up again, especially in the context of what's happening around the world. We, we see statues yes. be put up and we exactly. see statues taken down. So uh, he, he wasn't wrong that things can change. You, you say, though today he is remembered as a, I'm quoting you, as a brutal dictator forced mm. from power by brave people, this one-dimensional narrative is an airbrush of the historical record. One of the, one one reason Andrew regularly cited for the fall of the Shah was his authoritarian rule, and yet while he was quick in his final years to rebuff charges of say mass murder or the squandering, if not stealing, of Iranian people's money, he did not necessarily deny an authoritarian tendency. You actually quote him saying, "Listen, to carry through reforms, one can't help but be authoritarian." What what do you make of that? To run an authoritarian regime, I think you need to have an authoritarian personality and tendencies, and that wasn't who he was. And in some ways, that's maybe one of the fatal underlying flaws of the entire regime. The Shah was not like General Pinochet in Chile. He was not like a Saddam Hussein. He was actually a very, uh, from all accounts, uh, he was quite a soft, gentle man. He was extremely polite. He was very kind and respectful to everyone who worked for him. So, but he also believed that, especially, I think, after the turmoil of the 1940s and 50s, that Iran needed a period of calm and quiet in order to have, so that reforms could be put in for the future. My understanding is that period of ex what I would call uh, executive rule from the throne was only uh, intended to be temporary. He did not intend, and he knew he could not possibly hand over uh, the throne in to his son as he had ruled he he understood that Reza could not be that authoritarian king that he had been in his last 15 years and he talked 
on many occasions about eventually abdicating. And certainly that was the feeling within the family that at some point he would, there would be a handover in the early 1980s. Of course, he's caught out by the cancer diagnosis, which is another great tragedy in the story. And he, towards the end, is while he is struggling with the cancer diagnosis, he is also struggling with um, an economy in Iran that has turned against him because oil revenues were falling. And he was having trouble with his allies in the West. And there was the revival of Islam and a, rev and a resumption of Cold War tensions in the region. So at the exact time when he had decided to liberalize, Iran is hit from several different sides. Uh, it's like trying to open up, uh, democratize in the middle of a storm. It, it actually is not really possible to do that. And I, I think that he, he fell, he came to grief while he was trying to do that. So I'm going to make liberal reforms, but I have to be an authoritarian to make sure that they, they happen? Well, no, he actually had planned to step down. He was trying to transition to back to uh, what he believed was democracy. But he was, what happened in 77, uh, the liberalization began in 1976. It was publicly announced. And the restrictions on, on censorship, on freedom of assembly were gradually relaxed. He felt the first year went quite well. And so in the summer of 77, he moved into the second phase of liberalization, which allowed opposition groups like the National Front to start organizing again. And people began having peaceful protests. Now, uh, the Khomeini people uh, saw this as their opening, and they began baiting and goading the security forces uh, quite successfully. And you see, as I document in the book, these events in late 1977 where you have these uh what i describe in the book as cells of revolutionaries who take advantage of liberalization to try and stir public panic and discord and they were very successful in doing that but yes i mean the, you, you make a very interesting point is it possible for the head of an authoritarian regime to dismantle that regime peacefully and then have a handover to his chosen successor. That's the paradox. And Andrew, I'm That's not sure, maybe, I, maybe I'm misreading it, but I thought when he's talking about when, that, that quote to carry through reforms, I mean, look, he's been the Shah at this point by 79, by 78, for, for almost 40 years. Uh, hmm. And so, uh, albeit the last 20 years really in, you know, I mean, he started, he was in his 20s. He didn't, uh, you, could, you could sort of say, okay, let's take it from the mid 50s afterwards. But the reforms he was carrying through, you could date back to the 60s, right? So he's had the opportunity to be an authoritarian or to not be an authoritarian, if you will. Mm. Um, and I thought that's what he was referring to that entire period, not just the late 70s. Well, the, the reforms from the, the, the white revolution reforms from, from 63 onwards were social and economic in nature, predominantly social and economic. The political reforms were, were deliberately left out of that because the thinking at that time, and by the way, this is not just the Shah, this, this was the thinking of intellectuals in the West and indeed some in Iran, is that if you instituted far-reaching social and economic reforms while you were instituting political reforms, you could create a revolutionary situation in your country. I know that sounds ironic, but that was the general thinking at the time, especially coming out of the United States. Um, 
the Shah believed that. He sold the Kennedy administration on that in 63. And they, they basically said to him, okay, we're going to take the pressure off you to on the political side. Show us what you can do in economics and the social side. And he was doing very well until, uh, as I documented in my first book, the, the oil shock really was a shock to the Iranian economy and to the Iranian society right. and had many negative consequences. And I think that by 76, after he had tried the experiment with the Rastakis party in 75, which was a total disaster, um, by early 76, he understands that he needs to start transitioning. He, the transition is driven by the fact that he knows he has cancer. In a way, he's a victim of his success. It's not possible, really, for an authoritarian or executive monarch to run a very complicated petropower that has the fifth largest standing army in the world. He needs to bring in experts on the political side. So you have that side of it, and you also have the Shah's instinctive distrust of democracy because he had lived through the late 40s and early 50s period with Mossadegh. And so he was always on the alert, on the lookout for a strong political personality who might challenge him or challenge the dynasty. Hmm. I would also say that that was not just uh, something that relevant only to the Shah. All the monarchies in the Middle East and Eastern Mediterranean at that time, whether it was um, Greece or Jordan, uh, were struggling with the exact same questions that he was. So he was trying to pull off something that I think was extremely difficult to do. And um, we know that he, perhaps because he did not have full belief in that democratic transition that he was very suspicious of what he was doing he lost control of events and that's the story of late 77 early 78 he lost control of the story there are so many interesting paradoxes or contradictions at work and we had um, professor Mansur farhang on the program uh last week um who of course was intimately involved <laughs> by the 1979 in, in events in iran but uh you know when i made the case to him uh and and he started as a kid very pro mossadegh and all that that's part of his history uh jailed for it in fact but but when i said but wasn't the shah responsible for a great liberalization uh through the say 60s and 70s he said uh, and i'm paraphrasing him probably badly but he said something like well it's a great thing to give women the vote but what does it mean if there's no democratic election uh, so there's these contradictions at work right in terms of yes. the reforms yes and and that that uh, contradiction you pointed out was something that reflective of of uh, a number of countries in West and East Asia at the same time. And you can point to South Korea, where there was a belief that the fastest way to to develop a country in the developing world, the fastest way to get the economy moving and to get money into people's hands, was to put democracy on ice for a certain number of years. It's always easier for uh, to gather power as the leader, to, to gather power, than it is to disperse it to give it up when when you understand or you can see there's a problem developing and that was also one of the problems the shah was faced with is how do you slowly give power away when you have concentrated it in your hands the entire system is dependent on you having that power 
And when you've encouraged people in the political system to really distrust each other, he had removed so many rivals. He had exiled uh, people or he'd given them jobs, nice jobs and sinecures. And so when he was in need of political talent near the end, people either wouldn't work with him or they distrusted him or they just were not involved in politics anymore. Mm. So there was a vacuum. And we know what happened in the vacuum. We know who stepped into that vacuum. Let me come to that. I, I want to stick for a second with, uh, I, I said I'd come back to two points, uh, the shyness that you talk about and the human rights abuses, uh, or the, the lesser of the human rights abuses than we expected to find. In terms of his personality, Andrew, you explore a man uh, very different, as you say, from an arrogant authoritarian or a, a Machiavellian dictator. You make the case mm. that he was remarkably shy and modest. I mean, he was relatively diminutive. He was 5'8", uh, didn't personally care that much about fashion or style or even material goods, you say. Didn't even want all those pictures of himself in the palaces, uh, you say. Uh, there's a scene... And all of this is quite sad. There's a scene at the White House in 1977 you describe where the Shah uh, is being feted with, with uh, Jimmy and Rosalind Carter are there and, and I think Sarah Vaughan and Dizzy Gillespie are playing on stage. He doesn't get up at the end to shake the, get up on stage and shake their hands and this is widely interpreted in the press the next day. The nar- narrative is he's arrogant and doesn't want to shake the hands of, of black musicians and you say mm. he was actually sitting there because he was paralyzed by shyness. Um, can you speak to yes. that? <laughs> it's another one of these uh, uh, remarkable contradictions with the Shah is that here you have the, the emperor of Iran who has lived a public life his entire life and he has had to speak in public. He, he suffered from anxiety. I mean, this is someone who was taking a Valium every night to sleep and had been since the 1950s. He was someone who had um, intestinal dietary problems probably related to to intense the intense levels of stress he was under he was rigidly in control of himself all the time and i think that in a situation where at the white house where he was the sharpenu got up very quickly she, the president and mrs carter as as you described they they asked that the iranian royal couple come up onto the stage and shake hands with the band but the shah in some ways was very comfortable with the court protocol that removed him from having contact with people because he was a shy fellow. Even with his own family members, he was very shy, they tell me. He found it difficult to express himself. And it is a really sad episode. I, I, was, I, I thought that that was uh, sort of a classic case of how you have a baked-in narrative of, of this you know, awful, you know, he's rude, he's arrogant, he's racist. And the fact is that he is just very misunderstood. Um, and I'm not sure that the Americans ever understood the Shah. And in fact, um, which is remarkable when you think of the amount of money and resources they invested in Iran while he was in power and the way they depended on him. And yet if you read the CIA intelligence analyses of him, they could be talking about someone else completely different. It's not clear to me that they are they're talking about the Shah, but are they really talking about the Shah as the man? And I guess I would just raise another point about this, is that they had no concept of the Shah's total and absolute commitment to the Persian kingship and the Far, which is something I talk about in the book. 
not once in any of the thousands of documents I've read have they ever, did the Americans ever understand or that they were even aware of the fact that, that their ally had a very traditional view of Persian kingship. And, and that's a very important thing to consider, I think. I think it's worth stopping for a moment and, and saying, I just, I said that anything you're going to say, you know, there's going to be naysayers, there's going to be people on either side of this. I can mm. hear a naysayer saying, or, or, or how would you respond to a naysayer mm. saying, really, well, how shy and modest can someone be if they're presiding over a police state in Savak? So how do we, yeah. how do we make, connect those two dots? Well, the Shah was also, I think, actually related to shyness and being retired, is that retire, having a retiring nature, is that he did not like to hear bad news. He was someone who, what, there was an element of, of self-denial there. And start, the, the human rights issue that we're talking about is really focused on the period 1971 to 76, which is, I, in, the, in the book I refer it to as, as, as the Iranian as a dirty war against leftist, leftist subversion. That's when human rights in, in Iran became an international scandal. The security uh, officials who worked with the Shah, who knew him well, including General Nasseri, regarded him as so soft that they really created this internal police state that, of course, he was aware that Savak was active and they were suppressing leftists. But they kept the full details of that away from him. I mean, his wife went to him repeatedly saying, you know, this person has been locked up, this artist, this poet, this writer, this is outrageous. But he didn't. Uh, he was not aware of what was happening in the prisons with the torture. I mean, I think that's quite clear to me that that was the case. Because when he was informed, starting in early 76, he was the one who invited the International Committee of the Red Cross and Amnesty International and the International Commission of Jurists into Iran to conduct independent investigations. When they came back to him and they said, we have all the numbers of people who are arrested in the prisons and you really need to focus on this, he did focus on it. And he, uh, starting in early 77, when these the, they, they released their reports, that's when you see him outlaw torture and he turns over the prisons to the ICRC, which ironically... Uh, his enemies, especially in the Islamist movement, saw as a sign of real weakness. But it's even more than that, as you do in your book. Uh, you are a former researcher at uh, Human Rights Watch. I mean, you're, mm. you're hardly, you're, your career would hardly suggest that you're an apologist for human rights abuses. Uh, no. you, you claim in this book that you were astounded to find that while the Shah of Iran was no angel when it came to jailing and executing dissidents, as you just talked about, the number of human rights abuses under the Shah were, you say, dramatically lower than what the popular narrative suggests. What can you tell us about that? The numbers are very important. And for me, uh, because this, uh, what I referred to earlier as a baked-in narrative, as a, as a, a brutal dictator, the bloody dictator, a bit like Nicholas, Nicholas II of Russia, who was accused of being Nicholas the Bloody. And now we know that he was a very soft, retiring autocrat himself, um, or like Louis XVI of France. But that these numbers are important because they have been used for, the, for a long time to justify the caricature of the Shah as uh, this, this sort of criminal as a as a brutal dictator we can't really 
have an honest, full discussion of the period and the man without having the numbers. And now we have the numbers, ironically, courtesy of the Islamic Republic, which did this study um, probably about 20 years ago now. Uh, they decided to memorialize all the victims of the Pahlavi regime. Khomeini, remember, had had accused the Shah of, of complicity in the murders of 60 to 70,000 people um, and 100,000 people in lockup in prisons. Right. Those numbers had been repeated by Amnesty International in the mid-1970s. When you look at the numbers we have now, which, by the way, are confirmed by the ICRC, those numbers now have gone down from 100,000 people in prison to, uh, in 1976, 75, 76, it was about 3,200. And from 60 to 70,000 executions, we're down to um, 383 people died in the Shah's prisons uh, through combination of torture or suicide or execution. Those numbers are important because although there were, there were human rights abuses, I, I'm not saying that, and it's, a, it's something I feel very sensitive about because of my background. For historians, it's very important because we need to know what the numbers were so we can have an honest revision of the entire period. I am particularly interested in numbers because in the late 1990s when I was at the UN and Human Rights Watch, I was the person who worked on the International Campaign for Landmines, which was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in yes. 1997. We had numbers for the uh, landmines that were infesting more than 60 countries around the world at the end of the Cold War. We had numbers provided by governments. We had numbers provided by NGOs, by communities on the ground. And my job was to study those numbers and see, you know, try and reconcile them. So once you reconcile the numbers, you can start to do serious investigative uh, work. So I was very shocked. And in some ways, when the numbers came down, I remember thinking this was in early 2013, and I had just started writing the book. And I thought, oh, my God, this is a real, in some ways, it's a real problem for me, because if the numbers go down that dramatically for Iran, what does that say about the Shah? I mean, that raises a whole series of questions about who he was. And how did the numbers get into circulation? And as I document in the book, I actually uh, traced foreign correspondents in the West who were responsible for putting those numbers in the Guardian newspaper yes. and the Los Angeles Times, for example. And I interviewed them and I said, how did you get the numbers and why did you, what was your fact checking uh, for those numbers? And there was no fact checking. The numbers came from Mr. Gospode, Mr. Yazdi and Mr. Bani Saad. What did Bani Saj say when you talked to him about that? We had a really fascinating three-hour <laughs> discussion. He, initially, he was very, I think, very bored with me for about two hours, and then I asked him a question where he suddenly became very alert. Well, for them, they were revolutionaries. The means justify the ends. They, you know, they weren't interested in, in the correct numbers. What they were interested in doing was creating the perception in the West that the Shah was a monster and that he was a terrible guy and that they would do a better job of running Iran than, than he would. And the Shah made a real mistake when he thought and he said, I can't believe anyone would believe this nonsense. This is rubbish. And I'm not going to dig dignify it with the response. These numbers are so crazy. 
you know, the idea that you could have 100,000 people locked up in Iran at that time was ridiculous because the prison capacity was just not there. And if there were 100,000 people taken off the streets, where were the families who were, who were missing their relatives? So the foreign correspondents were very sympathetic to the revolutionaries. Uh, this was the early 70s, remember, when in the Middle East there were all sorts of rebel and revolutionary movements that had sort of an aura of romanticism about it. So they repeated these numbers. Um, and one of the reporters told me that this uh, Mr. Gotspaday would come by the bureau in Beirut where he lived at that time. And he would say, uh, look, Jonathan, can you, I, I've got a story for you. I, I, can you just run it for me? And Jonathan would put it in the Washington Post. And I said to him, I don't understand how you can do that. How are you, you're just repeating what Gotspaday is giving to you. And he said, Andrew, all I can say is that it was the period of the times. He said these were revolutionary movements and there was a general sympathy, there was antipathy towards the Shah. But Andrew, the, the, um, the, the narrative wasn't just written by the revolutionaries. I mean, it's created, the narrative around the Shah uh, for, the, for the years after the revolution uh, has been created from all corners, including the Americans and the British, uh, you know, both British Ambassador Parsons and Ambassador mm. American Ambassador Sullivan, uh, who were there at the time, uh, have written these autobiographies and painted a very negative picture of Mohammed Reza Shah, pretty much depicting him as a this demoralized indecisive you know weak character mm. clinging to their sleeves like a a lost child in in his final days in iran what do you make of those characterizations yeah i mean there's nothing like a loser in history i mean after you know after the revolution everyone heaped every sort of opprobrium on the shah because he had lost and parsons and sullivan both had reasons for not talking about certain aspects of their role as uh, it, 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 what they were doing in the late 70s. I mean, Parsons was, frankly, he missed the entire revolution. Uh, he missed the biggest story in modern Iranian history. And Mr. Sullivan, nowhere in his autobiography, which is a very uh, thinly written, if anyone's read it, it's a very interesting, thinly written document, uh, he doesn't talk about his secret opening to Mr. Bazargan in the spring of 1978, or indeed to his desire, his his recommendation to Washington in the late 78 that that Khomeini would make a really great head of state because he would be he would be like Mahatma Gandhi, and he could he could keep the army in line, and we would have an an anti-communist Iran, um, and the Shah was finished. And Bazargan would be the prime minister. I mean, that was that was really the idea that they had. I interviewed his underlings in the embassy. There were three of them who were still alive at that stage. Unfortunately, the, the Chargé has died. And he was he was very honest with me. Charlie Ness, a wonderful guy, who felt it had been a complete disaster. The other two um, were very defensive of Sullivan and of the strategy that they had of of of. But and then they wouldn't they wouldn't accept that they had made a mistake, although they seemed to they seemed to understand that they had during in the course of my interviews with them. There's ample evidence that has surfaced in recent years, definitively proving high levels of coordination between Khomeini's most inner circles and the Americans uh, prior to the revolution. Uh, I've heard this theory. You tell me. It, it, I mean, is it conceivable that the that the whole occupation of the U.S. embassy in Tehran uh, could have been a cover up operation? What do you make of the the people who say that? 
You know, I, I have not studied the embassy takeover. There's a lot we don't still don't know from that period. There's a lot we're still finding out, and that's why this is such a rich area for exp of exploration. It requires really solid investigative research. Uh, for example, one of the things that I found out that was I thought was very interesting was that the CIA was tapping the Charbonneau's telephone line in the palace in late 78. I found out that the head of French intelligence in the French embassy in Tehran knew that the Shah had cancer. These things weren't known even 10 years ago. But when we find information like that out, it helps us better understand the motives of the Western powers as well as they watched the Shah flailing in late 1978 and wondered why he was not ordering the crackdown that they believed could have saved the regime. That's a great segue, because where I wanted to go, I want to zoom out and look about look at where we are 40 years hence and 40 years after the death of the Shah. Um, First, let's talk about the revolution. You, you've said, you say in the book that researching the Iranian revolution, I'm quoting you, is like entering a dark tunnel without a flashlight. Well, we know that there were massive amounts of people in the streets wanting change and then welcoming the arrival of Khomeini. And then we also know that most of those people who prosecuted the revolution alongside Khomeini and were not part of the Islamic formalists pivoting towards theocratic rule were either killed or forced to leave the country. And we know that subsequently the current regime has proceeded with a level of authoritarianism that makes the Shah's era pale in comparison. So why is it such a dark tunnel? And why, from your perspective, is there so much disagreement in the diaspora? Because controlling the historical narrative is critical to the survival of the Islamic Republic. In fact, the Islamic Republic has made the narrative of the revolution the justification for, it, for its existence. And so there's a, a, a fight going on at the moment over control, who gets, gets to control the narrative. It's, it's very interesting to me that Oil Kings was translated inside Iran and published inside Iran because the regime thought that the book revealed the Shah to be to have made serious problem, uh, miscalculations towards the Saudi Saudis in the late 1970s, and they were trying to score points against the Saudis, and they were trying to use this as a nationalist argument against Saudi Arabia at home. But with Fall of Heaven, when the book came out, there was a, just a torrent of abuse that was directed at me, and in fact, the regime created 12 websites offering three free translations of the book to Iranians and if you clicked on the website to get your free download the Iranian intelligence services gained control of your computer they they essentially sucked all the information out because they want to know who's interested in the Shah if you're interested in the Shah that suggests that you might have counter-revolutionary subversive tendencies it's like for example um Every so often, there's a rumor that goes around that, that the Shabanu has died. And she's well aware of this because she has people who phone her and say, Your Majesty, I'm so worried. I thought, you know, I'd heard that you had passed away. And she, you know, she laughs about this. But the, the reason they, that the regime is behind these rumors is that they want to see the reaction on the streets of Tehran. They want to know that if she, it, when she dies, they want to know who's going to come out into the streets to mourn her or to stage a protest for the monarchy. So this is a game of shadows that's going on. Some of it's public and a lot of it's not. And um, for those of us who dip our t 
toe into the waters. You know, there are piranhas in the water, and it, it's very. Um, it requires a bit of a thick skin, I think, to delve into the revolution. It, and I will just say this as well. The study, st this writing about the revolution, I found was a very, very dark, depressing topic as, as a historian. It was a very sad topic. Most of my interviewees wept during our encounters, and, and I'm including the Americans in that too, American nationals who were in Tehran during the revolution. It is clear that if you lived through the revolution, you were traumatized. And I'm sure that many of your listeners who are younger will have experience with parents or grandparents who lived through the revolution yes. and probably carried that trauma with them yes. still today. Yes. So it is a very dark subject because of the outcome. It wasn't like the French Revolution where you could, ex you could say, well, there were these themes of egalite, fraternite, liberté, etc. Um, the Iranian Revolution is a tunnel that keeps getting darker and darker. And, um, you know, we're still in that tunnel today, I think. When you talk about the, uh, Andrew, the torrents of abuse, you said, that you received when this book came out, from whom? Oh, there's a wave of trolls, an army of trolls that, that um, came after me. The book had been released on a Tuesday. There was a an, uh, book review in the New York Times book review on Friday. I think it was posted on a, the Friday night. And the reviewer accused me of being anti-Islamist, which I thought was quite a strange thing to say. But I knew what that person was. That person was actually, this was like red meat. Uh, I knew what she was doing. She was she was um, essentially uh, putting me out there in the public square to be torn apart, and that's what happened. In fact, um, uh, the the abuse and the threats were so great that on the Monday, Amazon, which now unfortunately has to have a standing committee of of people who meet every day to consider threats and violence and abuse against authors online, they met. And they had to go through my Amazon page and um, clean it up because the, the the trolls were, the abuse was just so awful. And I closed down all my social media accounts. Um, it was dangerous at that time. This was in summer of 2016. To be accused of that was when the book is not really, a, it's not about that at all. I found very unsettling and disturbing at the time. Historians are very much on the front line of the culture wars that are going on now. And so you would think that because we're in the academy, we are somewhat elevated or removed from what's going on. Actually, historians are coming under sustained and severe attack from authoritarian regimes and their supporters. Uh, and it gets very personal and it's, um, it's very unpleasant. You know, your book itself seems to be evidence of a shifting popular narrative about the Shah of Iran and how he is seen as a historical figure. So uh, the question is, as we're well into this interview, um, and back to the precipitant for it, on this 40th anniversary of his death in exile, how do you believe he and his years as the ruler of Iran are seen uh, differently from, say, 20 years ago or even 10 years ago? I think it's safe now to talk about his accomplishments. It's not always about Savak. It's not always about the human rights side. 
we can now look at the human rights side and you can look at education, literacy, healthcare, the environment, all of the, the legislative achievements that he, that he put in place. You can look at the infrastructure he put into Iran. You can really have, an, for the first time now, we're far enough away from the revolution to have a really honest, sober discussion of who this man was and what he was trying to achieve. And, and that's what the study of history is all about. I love what I do because it's investigative work and it, it, it is very, um, it's rewarding for me to have Iran, young Iranians or Iranians of all ages, actually, who will write to me and say, I read your book and I learned a lot. And this is not what I thought happened. And, and they thank me. And that's, that's really wonderful. I love hearing those. I always write back to people. I make my books accessible. I don't want to write just for the academy. I want to write for anyone who's interested in, in a good story, good historical story. And everything that I do is very carefully documented and backed up. I think Fall of Heaven has 2,200 footnotes. But could you have written this book in 1990? Uh, could you have even written this book in 2000? No, no, it's not. It wasn't. It wasn't possible. No, it, it, it actually. This book was made possible by the Oil Kings. My first book. That book was read by a number of Iranians on on different sides of the political spectrum, and there was a general consensus that whoever this person is, he's doing something different, and and I will talk to him if he if he approaches me. But vis a vis the um, feelings about the Shah, in the diaspora. Yes. Um, yeah. When you say you're allowed to, to talk about his accomplishments now, um, when did that change? Since when has that become okay? I would say the last 10 years, it's now becoming, and, and there's a lot of, I think there's going to be a lot of scholarship on the social programs, on what went right. It's okay to say that you know, we know that things went wrong. Of course they went wrong. There was a revolution. But we can also now say a lot of things actually went right and we know that because those programs that he that he and also the Shabanu instituted in Iran many of them actually survived to this day they were not demolished by the Khomeini people when they came in they just changed the names they purged the people who ran the programs and they gave them put them in a different direction but they kept them in more or less intact because those programs were working really well he was the great builder of modern Iran, and and if you if you avoid talking about him, you're not talking about the modern history of Iran. You can't get around this guy. I found it fascinating that Iranians are completely captivated by the Shah, and when I ask them why aren't you interested in Khomeini, I mean I never hear this level of interest in Ayatollah Khomeini. They just, their eyes glaze over. They have no interest at all in talking about the Ayatollah. But which Iranians are you asking? Um, even inside inside Iran, there was no interest in Khomeini. In fact, uh, I, I went, when I was in Qom, I, I, the people, I the, the religious people who hosted me, who were very kind, they took me up to Tehran to Khomeini's house in the northern suburbs and... and um, there was a smattering of people there, and it was a hot day, and I thought, well, it's the weather. But then they took me to Niavar. I insisted on going to Niavaran, actually, Sadabad, I should say, and then Niavaran. And in Sadabad, there was lines of people outside the gate. There were, there were hundreds of people walking around the grounds. And my guide was embarrassed and uncomfortable because he could see that 
people did not want to go to Khomeini's house. They wanted to go to see the Shah's house. They were interested in the Pahlavis. Interesting. And that struck me as, as, as a, 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 a very interesting, um, how, how Iranians are, what, what the interest of the Iranian people right now is in that history before the revolution. Before I let you go, I, I'm grateful for how much time you have given us. I, I, let me try this on you. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about in, in uh, having finished your book and thinking about this conversation and the broader context of what's happening in the world right today, you know, on the streets of Portland in the U.S. or, or uh, different part or Hong Kong. Is it somehow odd that at a time of global reckoning around powerful establishment leaders or monarchs or authoritarianism, certainly in, in the view, say, of the, the Black Lives Matter movement and democracy protests uh, around the world and in the United States, that in the case of Iran, the inclination is around the rehabilitation of the image and legacy of a king of kings. What do you make of that? I find it fascinating. I find it fascinating. It's why Iran is, is so it, it's so compelling. Uh, the the culture, the history, the society, and the people are uh, endlessly interesting to me. Um, it is really fascinating because they are clearly looking to the past, the immediate past, for inspiration and for some kind of solace and for for answers. I think as to what happens when the Islamic Republic is gone. What are we going to do? And it's an interesting discussion, I think, going on. I think that there's a not there's more than nostalgia. There's there's a, a real longing for that Persian tradition of constitutional monarchy and kingship, and that the Islamic Republic is somehow illegitimate. That it's people when I you know they seem to behave as though it's almost like a, a regime of occupation. So. We, we shall see what happens, but it's, uh, it's a story that still has to play out, and ultimately the Iranian people will decide what their future is and, and what happens next. Well, let me ask you a final question then about your hunch on that, because I know the study of history doesn't, it doesn't give you a crystal ball, mm. uh, but beyond any dewy-eyed nostalgia or aspirational hopes of those who um, want to see a particular return of the Pahlavise, as someone who has now acquired a wealth of knowledge on Iran and Iranians and who's been to all those places to do the research you've done, do you think there is any chance that we see the reestablishment of monarchy in Iran? I think you can't rule it out by the, simply by the fact that Iran has had the Persian monarchy is over 2,000 years old and, and the Islamic Republic is 40 years old. The Re Islamic Republic is really a dynasty as well. I mean, so you have the Iranian history is the story of dynasties. And when you consider the rise and fall of the dynasties, I think even the people running Iran today understand that they are not going to be there forever, that that dynasty is going to fall. At that point, there will have to be some kind of constitutional convention and every, every possibility, every option will be discussed. And so I wouldn't rule it out, no. I, I think that it would be at least contemplated and the de it depends on whether anyone puts themselves forward for that position and whether it's an appropriate you know, a position for the future. But certainly when you see over 100,000 people, young people gathering outside Cyrus's tomb, as they did, I think it was four years ago, five years ago, you, you can't just write that off as 
simple nostalgia. There's something else going on, and it's a very interesting phenomenon to watch. I can't think of another exiled royal family that has ever had this amount, this degree, depth of popular support after being out of the country for so long. I, I think this is very unique. Andrew Scott Cooper, I thank you so much for the, the time you've given us today. Th thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Andrew Scott Cooper, a historian, analyst, author of two books on the history of the modern Middle East, including his latest book, The Fall of Heaven, The Pahlavis and the Final Days of Imperial Iran. Andrew Scott Cooper joined us from Brussels, Belgium today. آه منی اشتباه منی چگونه هنوز از تو میگویم تو هم سفر نیم راه منی چگونه هنوز از تو میگویم پناه منی تکیگاه منی که زمزمت مانده در گوشم گناه منی بی گناه منی که بار غمت مانده بردوشم بهانه من بغز خانه من گرفته دلم گریه میخواهم خیال خوش عاشقانه من همیشه تویی آخرین راهم Ali That's a brand new song from 2020. That's just released with uh, Ali Reza Afkari. Man, I love uh, Qurbani. Uh, I think we've tried to, we've talked to him about coming on the show, haven't we, Shaya? Yes. But yes. he's he says he doesn't speak English well enough. Uh, he said he wasn't confident enough to speak, to interview in English. Yeah. yeah. Well, he could just come and sing. I mean, he doesn't have <laughs> right. need to say oh, anything. I'm such a fan it. of You this. can do it in Farsi. Like we could do it in Farsi. Mm -hmm. Merci that, that'll be amusing. Merci, Kian Docht. The fabulous Kian, as you can hear, has uh, returned to the studio. Captain Reza, Groovy Shaya, Andrew Scott Cooper. That was most interesting. I quite uh, enjoyed talking to him. Um, reflections on that? Okay. Shaya? Um, first of all, um, I'm very happy that he was in uh, Belgium. Brussels, yeah. Brussels, that the connection was great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. Shia relieved that the technical uh, worked out. Yeah, no, actually, he sounded, he sounded uh, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. And uh, so, uh, you know, I, I like Shah and... Uh, um, I, I'm not saying that I'm pro Shah. I mean pro monarchy or okay. Pro, yeah, but I think uh, a lot of people uh, disagree with uh, uh, Andrew Scott Cooper mm -hmm. uh, because he w he w I think he he he, he, he has a lot of sympathy with. Mm -hmm. Uh -huh. and, and a historian maybe not has to have yeah. a lot of sympathy, but 
That's well, you know, you're, you're right. Some people certainly disagree with him, including uh, Dr. Milani, who was yes. on on uh, Monday, and and you know, as he mentioned on in the interview on Monday, wrote a rather scathing review of of, uh, of Professor uh, Cooper's book. But um, I think there's going to be a lot of people who agree with him as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Reza, I can just stop the show right now and listen back to the interview one more time. It was so engaging and interesting, and ending it with that music. First of all, I gotta say that because I really enjoyed it. And uh, I find it fascinating, very fascinating, that a non-Iranian has been able to uh, have like get access. And probably, I mean, Ashaya says that this guy is probably not unbiased because of his sympathy for uh, towards the Pahlavi dynasty. But I think, um, on the other hand, because he's not Iranian, I feel like he was able to gain more access to uh-huh. well, a lot of archival. That. Yeah, he said that. He says that in the book, and he said it in the interview. And he, I, you could absolutely see that, right? That totally. people consider him a more sort of objective person as he's entering the yes. room somehow because he's yeah. not Iranian, so he doesn't have a, a horse in the race somehow. Very and true. That's, and that's what he was he was implying. Kian, yeah. how did you feel? I, I was going to say I appreciate the fact that he's a non-Iranian that has that kind of different view of Iran from the outside. Because mm-hmm. listen. Like, we're all Iranian. We all have our opinions of what happened, Mm -hmm. uh, our opinions about the Shah. So it's kind of refreshing to hear a different view of it. And and like you said, he probably had access to a lot more interviews with people that were close to the Shah. These people don't trust the other, um, Mm -hmm. like, for example, Abbas Milani. He was one of the reasons the revolution happened. Um, I was going to say, actually, I read... Abbas Milani's book uh, at the beginning of quarantine, The Shah, and it absolutely... Oh, recently? Yeah, it absolutely tore me apart. I I couldn't get out of bed for, like, I think a full day. Because? It it was just so heartbreaking, you know? Just, Mm -hmm. you hear of these stories, but when you're reading about, like, The Shah just, he did not see it coming. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, he had this view of... Milani definitely points, uh, (laughs) it it is a lonely figure in the end, the way you come away, uh, no matter what your opinion, uh, uh, thinking about The Shah after reading that book. Uh, It's not dissimilar reading The Fall of Heaven, if you're interested in reading. I was going to say... uh, You're going to say you probably... I I, I had that You you want to be able to get out of bed. (laughs) Yeah, I have that sitting on my shelf I was like I'm going to read it next I was like I need need a bit of a break after that so I suspect it's going to be interesting the reaction we get because I suspect Mm -hmm. that it probably has to do with where you where you already come from you know people have so many baked in opinions about even though this series is about how opinions are evolving and narratives are changing over time historically as we talked about with each uh, person and I want to talk to uh, Mohammed Amini coming up in a few moments about as well I suspect that if you come into this um you know, being fervently anti-Shah or having a, a an opinion that's different from Cooper mm-hmm. and you're Iranian, you're probably going to say, he's misinformed, he's not Iranian, doesn't know what he's talking exactly. about, you know. And if you're sympathetic to what he's saying, you're going to say, oh, well, it's great that an outsider wrote this yeah, book. Yeah, actually, my parents, like, out of all the writers, they agree with him with the Cooper. most because they're very pro-Shah. Right. For me, it's very different because I come from. I'm come to. I'm looking at it from a very different perspective. It's for me. It's the fun facts that are very interesting, like him getting a visa to go to Iran oh. and then they, they having, to go to Qom. <laughs> having to go to Qom. Having to go to Qom. Wasn't that amazing? Yeah. Like, yeah. did they part know of what he was writing about? <laughs> probably not the way he was writing. Probably, but uh, it's that's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, okay. We got Mohammed Aminis uh, standing by. We're going to get to him in, in just a little bit. Let's get to letters of the week. One job to do, Kia. One, <laughs> one job to do. Listen, I have like 
<laughs> yeah, why? Open yeah, up yeah. the letters okay. or right, minimize. Right. I was looking yeah. for it. No problem. Go, no ah. problem. Should we play <laughs> Ali Reza Korbani again? One more time yeah. for the cheeks. I can listen to that all day. Okay, so uh, so as we all know, this week's uh, Rook series uh, commemorated the 40th anniversary of the Shah's death. So we're reflecting on how impressions of the Pahlavi dynasty may be changing over time. So to start this week on episode 38, we had a feature interview with the acclaimed academic and historian Abbas Milani. He's most well known as the author of the book The Shah, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and so in this long-awaited interview, uh, he, he discussed the Pahlavi dynasty in depth, as well as his own personal journey from activism and imprisonment, which led to his career in academia. So a few people wrote about that interview. We have a chain analyst, username chain analyst on YouTube wrote, every Iranian should listen to this interview. Mm. I agree. Thank you, chain analyst. Mm-hmm. As well, we have Ali Reza Bagherli on YouTube wrote, Thanks for a great interview. I can't get enough of Milani. Mm. He is the perfect person to listen to when it comes to Iran's contemporary history. Okay. That's right. Ali Reza Bagherli, a fan. Thank you for that uh, letter. Mm-hmm. And then we have YouTube username TO, I believe it stands for Toronto, but you know, could be wrong, uh, on YouTube wrote, Thanks for the interview. Dr. Milani has a commanding knowledge of Iran's history. My question is, how useful is the psychoanalysis of political figures? How do their intentions matter? Their acts are what matter and affect people's life. This is what should be analyzed, not how shy the Shah was. Doesn't Dr. Milani think that the Shah was returned to power by the US and the UK? I am looking forward to the coming episodes, in particular, Mr. Amini. Hmm. Sounds like uh, T.O. is a fan of uh, Mohammed Amini and also uh, of Mossadegh, probably. Yeah, yeah, it sounds um, like <laughs> By the way, I think, I think, I mean, I think the psychoanalysis of political figures probably is important because uh, so important. much of what, what guided so, yeah. the Shah's decision-making, or right. for Khomeini, for that matter, has to do with, uh, with psychology, etc. Yeah, uh, but uh, I understand that the point that this person is making. Moving on, we have Alpine Ibex, username Alpine Ibex on YouTube wrote, The music selection at the end of each episode is so on point. I would never come across these tracks randomly. I agree. Like some of the music that you've played, I'm like, wow, where has this been all my life? Well, I'd say some of the sometimes that's me and like today, but most of the time that's uh, that's the incredible Shia. (laughs) Shia, you have a fabulous Keon and the incredible Shia. You might I might upgrade you from Groovy Shia. You should (laughs) make him captain. Just when we're talking about the music you pick, though. Yeah, I know. You have great taste in music. Yeah, it's always you know partly when sometimes when Shia picks a song. Uh, he he's he's lacing in some lyric that has to do directly with mm-hmm. yeah. something that someone's just said, and he's thinking about it on the fly mm-hmm. as the interview is happening. He's finding the music, and uh, it, it's quite amazing. Yeah, it's and beautiful. then other times I choose the music, and he disagrees with it at first, <laughs> and then plays it and loves it like today, yes. like the Ali Reza Khurwani. You weren't sure at first, though. Yes. Okay. It went along with the theme of today, yes. I'd say. And then we have Reza Ain on YouTube wrote, What an interview. Damatun Gam, Rook and Jian John. I have read the book The Shah many times. The book basically gives you a good vision of what went on during the Shah's tenure and is more focused on negative things about the Shah. 
I wonder if you were to have Reza Pahlavi on the show to give his point of view on the book, as well as the events, how would it go? Now the question is, are you considering inviting Reza Pahlavi on the show? And then we have uh, Sultan BC, username Sultan BC on YouTube Road, Jian Jian. 50 people are still commenting on the Mother Shahla episode because our people <laughs> like to dictate how others live. She chose India because she likes to live in India. If she chose Iran... Yeah, he posted this on the Abbas Miladi yeah, episode? Yeah. All right, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. He wants to make sure we see this message. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, yeah. If she chose Iran, she'd have to answer to more nosy people asking, why are you single, skinny, and why are you doing this? <laughs> the state of our country is a mirror of our culture. We are our own life that we create. All right. <laughs> By the way, that's a reference to episode uh, 36 and uh, Shahla Etifar, uh, Mother Miracle, who has chosen to leave her, who chose uh, a couple of decades ago to leave a life of materialism and give back and build a school in India. And there was some concern <laughs> among commenters that, or dissent uh, critics, with her say. critics yeah, <laughs> of her choices that why didn't she do this in Iran as opposed to India and then some people have argued back and so uh, who knew that Mother Miracle was going to be our most controversial uh, character so but controversial. Yeah, the letters continue so thank you Sultan BC for weighing in on that on a different episode <laughs> And then we have a username on Instagram. The username is Ismail. wrote, To whom should we thank for returning Gion to us from CBC? Thanks for the marvelous Rook episodes, Gion. By the way, I wish you'd make a Persian version of the episodes or a Persian closed caption, perhaps. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that letter was perhaps written before the Airfon subtitle. It sure was. But um, thank you, and I will call you Ishmael. Uh, if that's uh, thank you for those comments appreciate it all right and then we have another uh, Instagram user Marzia she wrote what a wonderful interview just one thing a couple of episodes ago Gian and Kion are arguing about the proper pronunciation of the word (laughs) diaspora I don't argue whether Gian's pronunciation is correct but I'm pretty sure that Kion's pronunciation is correct, and today is the best day right. of my life. Right. <laughs> well, so you're you think that Kion's uh, pronunciation is correct instead of? Uh, listen, Kion, uh, uh, you. Listen, Jayan. Exactly. So wrong. Exactly. Iran, Iran. I, I mm. did actually talk to my sister about this, who mm-hmm. is a. Uh, an incredible, uh, she's incredibly smart in general, but she also happens to be a professor of linguistics. Uh, and she said, um, drum roll please, both, both versions are correct. Uh-huh. And that is to say that there are different ways of saying things. So diaspora and diaspora mm-hmm. are two options in the same way that you would say I am anti-Shah or I am anti-Shah mm-hmm. or anti-Khomeini, anti-Khomeini. Um, and that the way we say things are governed often by uh, where we live, you know, our status, our gender, our age group, mm-hmm. etc. She said incredibly intelligent people say, for example, diaspora. And those who no, 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 she didn't say that. she didn't know the last part she didn't say peasants no, and commoners she, says that commoners. pretty sure I heard Reza Milani <laughs> say diaspora so who's smart now? Reza Milani is that Abbas Milani Abbas. oh man so uh, anyway that, there are different ways of saying it and uh, so they're both correct and and I will continue to say diaspora, diaspora. but <laughs> that was Sh- you, Shaya. Who was that? That was, that was Siri, was, right? was that Siri? The Google. Yeah. That was oh the Google so, person. So who right. do you want to debate now? <laughs> uh, 
Uh, All right, let's, thank let's, you. My way's better. But anyway, yes. moving on. Hope. Wow. Perfect segue. We have the letter of the week. So this week, by the way, Muhammad Amini is coming up. This poor man has been waiting. <laughs> I think we got him on the phone a while ago, right? Yeah, so, okay. we did. Okay, okay. Uh, okay, right, I'll right, rush right. through. Yeah. Um, letter of the week this week goes to a Farid Ameryun on Facebook wrote, That was pure gold. 90 minutes on the modern history of Iran by one of the country's top scholars. Parallel to some of your, gra- your previous guests, Dr. Milani is unapologetic for his role in the downfall of the last regime. Many Iranians refused to exonerate him and other intellectuals of his era for their participation in the events leading to the 1979 revolution. Setting that point aside, Dr. Milani is the most prominent defender of a secular and democratic Iran today and holds the most promising outlook. Reiterating what Professor Farhang stressed in his interview, Dr. Milani offers the path to liberating Iran by uniting the many scattered groups in exile and the millions of Iranians inside the country that oppose the brutality and incompetence of the current regime. Thank you for this brilliant and long-awaited interview. Beautiful. What a detailed letter. Thank you, Farid mm-hmm. Amarion. Thank you, the fabulous Keon, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shaya. Uh, and uh, we'll get to more letters next week on Letters of the Week. Okay, and now to continue our series on this 40th anniversary summer marking the death of the Shah of Iran. We've heard from Dr. Abbas Milani, whose comments have created a great deal of discussion. We've just heard from Andrew Scott Cooper, who's written a more perhaps generous appraisal of the Pahlavi dynasty and the final years. But as the late Shah's record is one of the most contentious and divisive subjects of contemporary Iranian history, it should come as no surprise that Andrew Scott Cooper's account has generated strong pushback by other historians. My next guest is one of those critics. Prominent Iranian historian Mohammad Amini has done extensive research on the 1953 coup and is the son of a close confidant of the late Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh. Professor Amini began his political life as a supporter of Shapur Bakhtiar, the last prime minister of imperial Iran, but he is famed for his research on subjects varied from modernity to constitutional revolution to tribal and ethnic discourses in Iran, the Islamic movement, and the formation of a nation-state in Iran. Mohammed Amini is a prolific author whose books include Tradesmanship with History, a factual investigation into the 1953 coup aimed at debunking the misinformation campaign against Mossadegh, and The Time and Life of Ahmad Kasravi. Right now, Mohammed Amini joins me from Orange County, California. Hello, sir. Thank you very much. I just have to make one correction. I'm not a professor. I don't teach anywhere, so I appreciate that, but um, I just have to make sure that people don't accept, you know, don't make that mistake. Thank I, you very I much. I appreciate the correction. I, I just, I think I project uh, professorship onto all historians. So can I call, <laughs> can I call you a historian? 
Absolutely, yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, you yes. know, uh, before we get into some of this, I mean, you, you would be among that flight of intellectuals who mm-hmm. left Iran during or after 1979. And, and as I say, before we get into the debated historic questions, uh, give us some background, some context about your personal experience in those volatile months before and after the revolution and, and what created the conditions for you to leave Iran for the last time. Well, I, just like uh, Dr. Milani, I came from a background of uh, activities in the United States uh, in the student movement against the Shah, and uh, uh, very idealist at the time. Everybody was idealist at the time. I went to Iran a year before revolution, and I witnessed everything, and it was amazing. And I was involved in a lot of things, and I stayed there for... Uh, survived the actual issues there for four years and the biggest issue that I confronted at the time that I was in Iran before revolution was when Bakhtiar was selected by the Shah to be the prime minister and the Jepheim Ali was the national front was against that and my father was very you know important in that relationship and had spent a lot of times in jail with Bakhtiar and when Bakhtiar came to power it was pretty much too late. You know, it was a movement that had gone from the point of possible reform to the point of non, no return. And it was a pretty, very sad situation for a person like me to see Iran collapse into the hands of the Islamic, you know, fundamentalists and people that have no clue even to how to turn the television, you know, into the... <laughs> Uh, for themselves. So, yes, it was a sad situation. Basically, I watched, you know, very close by the collapse of all the, at least the superficial uh, elements of modernity in Iran and everything else was created. And uh, under the banner of uh, Mark Bashar, you know, down the United States and all of that, Iran actually going to a very, very wrong direction. And that was the biggest issue at a time. When you say, like Dr. Milani, you returned to Iran uh, for a time in the mid-70s, you were also, like him, pro-revolution, or at least sympathetic to it before things turned and it was co-opted by the Islamic formalists. Would that be correct? Oh, absolutely. There's nobody, nobody at my you know, age group, age group of... Uh, 18 to 24, that was not for a change, major change. Everybody was for that, but none of us were for this kind of, you know, so-called revolution. We wanted a change. And I was like that too. I was a young kid. I liked it, you know, the change. And then very soon it realized, I realized that this is a change. I'll tell you when I realized that. When I came from Isfahan to Tehran on the night that Tehran was burning when Shah basically declared uh, control in 12 cities. And that's that night when Tehran was burning, and I was looking at the people that were burning Tehran. I said, really? Are these the guys that you are going to leave the country to? So it just shook me. And after that, we realized that you're, we are basically confronting a mob. And at the same time, a gorgeous, the movement of democracy and all of that, which had 
really limited leadership. So, yes, there was there was a problem at position and opposition. If there was, if Shah had heard the, the voice of the revolution a year earlier, and the opposition had heard to that, uh, if if somebody like Bakhtiar or Sadiqi or Sanjabi or somebody like that was put into power a year before, two years before, Reza Pahlavi would be king of Iran right now. So just to clarify, when what when exactly did you end up leaving? Four years after the revolution. After my kids were singing, you know, and, uh, and uh, I mean that the Arabic, you know, so-called initial national anthem of Iran, I told my wife at the time, we got to leave. And of course, I was in danger all the time. And uh, because of my relationship, my father's relationship with uh, people that were known in the government, I was kind of safe, but at the same time, I didn't feel safe. So my kids and my wife, uh, at the time, they left from the mountains of uh, Kurdistan, and I left from um, Mehrabad with a bribe. I never been back again. Wow. So let me get into this, uh, the historiography of what we can look at in terms of uh, what happened 40 years ago from the prism of 2020. You know, as, as more and more diplomatic communiques from the late 70s are declassified, a revisionist historical approach, it seems, is emerging with regard to the Iranian Revolution, and specifically regarding the record of the late Shah of Iran. And this new approach tends to challenge that conventional wisdom that overwhelmingly blames the late Shah for everything from being an authoritarian dictator to a weak puppet of Western powers and everything in between. Is now the time to redraw historic conclusions? Yes, it is. Actually, it's the best time to do that because Iran is, in a sense, pregnant with the uh, future. I think Iran is going to change. It's going to, Iran is going to change dramatically in the next few years. And because of the position of Iran, historically, geographically, economically, and the influence it has in the whole region, that change is going to change Middle East. So that review is very important. But let's go back and review. We have uh, this uh, long article by one of the most profound uh, economic you know, ministers in at least in the last uh, uh, 70 years of Iran, Ali Nabiyeh, Ali Khani, in the, the introduction to memoirs of uh, Alam, he is the best, that is the best analysis from, from somebody who was from the within the government, who was inside the government, who was responsible in building the economy, that he basically says that the Shah screwed it. He had the best economy, he had popularity, but his issue of selfishness, issue of dictatorship, concepts of him being it, really destroyed it for himself. Let me go back, if I may. You know, after the coup of 1953, which I've written a lot about, and I hate the elites of the people around the Shah for that, but after that, at the beginning of the 40s, the, the Iranian 40s, uh, the American 50s, yes. or 60s, I should, I should say, Shah started reforms. And those reforms, actually, along with the you know, increase in the oil prices, were the biggest 
beginning of the 1970, Shah is the most popular king, you know, as a historian, I can tell you, from the time of Nasruddin Shah, which at the time, the popularity was basically mandated. He was popular. He was accepted. And the opposition groups were absolutely non-existent. Japan Mendy was nobody. The left was just an underground, you know, few groups that had no influence. And this man could have changed the course of history, used his popularity with all the social reforms to political reforms. And if he had done that, his son would be the Shah of Iran right now. He didn't. And that is the biggest issue with the Shah, that he didn't use that popularity of uh, reform, which made him an extremely popular individual at the end of the 40s when he actually uh, started the White Revolution and Anglob Shah Melat and things like that. Yes. I still don't understand why not. There's there's conflicting ideas around who he was and what he did. You know, I was just speaking with Andrew Scott Cooper, who makes the claim that the Shah was actually quite shy and modest and not the arrogant dictator that he's been made out to be. Do you think the way the Shah has been portrayed in, in personal terms has been unfair in the last four decades? You know, there's not enough information at hand to judge that, but there is a point to Professor Cooper about this. Shah was a very weak individual. You want to know about the person, you have to read the memoirs of the closest people to him. And one of the closest people to him, that to the end of life loved him, was Soraya. And in that phenomenal book, The House of Solitude, which is, of course, in French, you know, the, uh, written by a Frenchman with the help of Soraya, she mentioned so many points that the Shah is so lonely, so scared, that every time there's a problem, he actually packs his suitcase. He wants to go out. He wants to just leave. Basically, you get this impression that Muhammad Shah was the second Shah after Ahmad, you know, the first Ahmad Shah and the Muhammad Shah, that they became reluctant Shahs, reluctant kings. During World War II, when Iran was invaded by uh, Allied, Shah was a reluctant king. He was very scared at the beginning. Gradually, he discovered his uh, power. And to the end, I don't think he was a bloodthirsty dictator. He was a, a very, very not very confident individual to mm. the end. Mm. And even to the point that Kaiser comes to Iran and says, sir, you have to leave tomorrow. And he asks in the morning or afternoon. There's a huge difference between his character and his father that was begging Fruri to stay in Iran, even if he's not a Shah. So, yeah, he had, he had basically issues with his character. What, what about the notion that New evidence shows that, according to historians like Cooper, 
there were significantly less human rights violations, less abuses, less executions under the Shah in the 1970s than the world had been led to believe in the run-up to the end and the aftermath of the revolution. What is your take on that? Oh, absolutely, that's true. You know, I, I met uh, Shokrulai Parknajad, which, uh, you know, we called him Shokri, one of the longest uh, prisoners. Uh, and he was uh, critical of the activities of the groups of uh, people that I belong to, Milani belong to, your opposition, student opposition, young kids outside of Iran, which we exaggerated the number of Iranian prisoners to hundred thousands and all of that. And he was saying, listen, at the high time of arrest, we were only about 5,000 people in jail. Yes, there were torture, there were a lot of things. There's no question that there were, you know, abuse of power and use of human, human rights, but it was exaggerated. It was grossly exaggerated. We were, you know, my father went to jail 11 times, from the coup to the time he left Iran. And every time that he actually went to jail, the head of Sarak or somebody in the Sarak would call, and my father would pack his bag and then go to jail, and then stay for 10 days, 15 days, 3 months, 6 months, and come back. Huh. No scars. It, the opposition outside was successful in claiming that and establishing it and selling it. And then the Bernard Nasser Committee in London actually made it official. And once they said that, it was totally accepted. There was dictatorship. There was torture in Iran. There was there were political political prisoners in Iran. But the amount of it, the, the, the you know, basically, the level of it was exaggerated. There's no question about it. Mohammed, could it be, as Abbas Milani suggested to me on Monday, that the different and often contradictory profiles of the late Shah, offered by different historians, may all have truth in them, uh, truth to them, in, in the sense that the Shah may have demonstrated vastly different personality traits at different stages of his rule and at different stages of his life? Absolutely. You know, that, that goes without saying. You know, you can say that the Madras are Shah too. But then look at, look at the life of the queen of Iran, Shah Banu. I've never met her. I don't have any sympathy to her, but her closest friend was Hajibi, you know, a major, major you know, figure in the left who actually went to Cuba a few times, Zida Hajibi, and Farah was sympathetic to him. And there were levels of freedom in Iran that nobody realized at the time, especially in the social area. Political, the man was crazy about it. He should have let that political freedom, you know, drive. He would not have been thrown out of, you know, his, his rule. The issue is, the society became so divided that when the Islamic extremists came and took over the whole revolution, there was nothing to stop them. Realistically speaking, yes, we could have lived a different way at the time. Well, that's for people that make movies. But how do you explain why 
the Shah of Iran, who, 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 as you say, um, presided over um, uh, tremendous reforms, modernity, uh, uh, was incredibly popular by the early 70s. Why he didn't have better instincts for what the people would want and expect around the political suppression that happens throughout the, the 70s and into the late 70s that ultimately is one of the reasons for his downfall? like any other dictator, they don't trust people around them. They think that they're doing these things in order to gain against them. Instead of instead of accepting things that people like Ali Khani were doing and other peoples within the cabinet were doing, instead of taking advantage of that, he thought that these people are conspiring against him. That's a concept of uh, uh, dictatorship. Uh, look at this. At the beginning of the you know, the, the rise of Reza Shah, every intellectual from Mashrute, from uh, Constitutional Revolution was around Reza Shah. At the end, everybody's gone. Some are dead, some are killed, some are in jail, some have escaped the country. The same thing happened to Mohammed Reza Shah. The, the problem with dictatorship is mistrust of the people that tell you the truth rather than understanding that these people are telling you what to do they go after exactly the same people that are telling you the truth and dictator things that he knows the best he can actually run the country without anybody so at the end Shah is a lonely guy nobody is around him to advise him let me ask you about the revolution itself and your take on it. One other area that's receiving more scrutiny by researchers is the alleged connections between the revolutionaries, uh, the mullahs, in fact, and foreign powers, primarily the, the United States and Britain, in the months leading up to the revolution. Based on your research, what do we know today that we didn't know even, say, 20 years ago? There was a point that finally Western intelligence groups uh, came to the conclusion that they cannot protect the Shah's uh, government. They have to go to someone else. And the only thing they saw in the, in the whole situation that Iran had a very, very large, active leftist movement and a thousand miles of border with then Soviet Union, the only choice they had was a Islamic movement, which they thought they would control the same way that British thought, you know, they would control the Muslim Brotherhood in, in Egypt. But I think we should go back. I think that's not about just the last few months. The reality is that after the beginning of modernity from Iranian revolution of 1905 and then the rule of Reza Shah and everything else, we had development of two societies in Iran. The modern society of the cities and the so-called non-modern society of the villages. And with the increased uh, income of oil, there were more and more reason for people from villages to come to cities. And it became a situation that on the, probably on the verge, maybe two years before the Iranian revolution, many cities in Iran, 
had become villagized, had become more and more ideologically close to ideology of villagers who came to basically make more money, and they were religious. And Tehran, most of the mosques, you know, never had anybody more than 50 uh, prisoners, and suddenly a thousand, two thousand, all of that. Uh, we had a revolution of people from outside of cities against the cities. And really, the cities were taken over by zealots and believers and religion, and yeah. uh, that's really what happened. Everybody was just completely surprised. How is it possible? than a city like Tehran, with all these beautiful boulevards and stores and everything else, bunch of you know religious zealots are taking over. But back to the, in terms of the, the connections and the um, enabling by the United States, say, of those formalist Islamists, that would be related to a strategic play related to the Soviet Union? Soviet Union as the enemy, and they they played that. But the problem with the policy of the United States at the time was that the United States was completely different from the several hundred years of the uh, colonial rulers of England. England would study every country uh, completely. I mean, they would just go over every inch of that country in order to be able to control, and they did for many, many hundred years, years, the United States basically, you know, people sat in an office and analyzed, and many times never realized what's going on. Uh, yes, they, the, the idea was to support any movement against the left and all of that in support of the Navy. They wouldn't call it Islamists, you know, they thought this is just a passing things, but to this day, I have to say, to this day, the United States doesn't have complete understanding of what happens in Middle East, in cultural, uh, tribal, religious, and everything in that regard. And they lose every time. The reality is that there was a chance, huge chance for the United States to align themselves with the democratic forces in Iran and calm down the situation, they did not, because it was a global issue. So, yes, they, the United States uh, definitely helped creation of the Islamic Republic without intention. You know, they, this is not that they wanted to do this, but they had no choice. They thought, Shah is gone. Who do we bring to power? And that's what they did, because every time it is like that. And I've always said that, you know, in my speeches and researches, every time British Empire left a country, it was with a ceremony, with a flag, you know, kind of brought down and respectfully left. And most of the time that unfortunately the United States left some of this country was either from a rooftop or absolutely in disgrace. Uh, because of the lack of knowledge of the culture of these countries to this age. At the center of all of this, back in 79, is General Robert Heiser's 
79 mission to Tehran. And it's now yeah. widely known that Heiser met with senior Iranian military leaders without any clearance from the Shah and established meetings between them and, and Khomeini allies. Why didn't the Shah take any measures against Heiser? Because he was afraid. Shah was not a very brave individual. He was not like his father. He basically thought that he is in a box, and this is a scripture they've given him to read. All the memoirs I read, interviews that I read from people that are very high in military, Shah never basically intervened. Shah was only interested in his cut, who he is, is he going to be there? Reza Shah wasn't like that. Reza Shah wanted everything, he wanted control. I mean, you cannot be the half-baked dictator. I, uh, unless you're a dictator, <laughs> not a dictator. Right. Shah was like, okay, whatever, you know, I am there. And, uh, but this is this is uh, what Abbas Milani says, uh, to paraphrase him, that he wasn't a dictator enough to prevent the revolution. No, you know, you know this is, this is, Darish Humayun told me this, you know, you know, a group of people like Darish Humayun got around the Shah and recommended that he would go and kill, you know, like 2,000 people, arrest 20,000 and stop the whole thing. And he wouldn't do that. And to be honest with you, that is to his credit. You know, that if there is one credit to the Shah is that he did not do that. He did not go in killing people and killing the, the whole so-called revolution by bloodshed and all of that. And because of that, you know, that's a good point in his life. But that was not in his character anyway. And people like Darius told me before his death, a good friend, wonderful person, you know, he come from different, oppos- you know, from the opposition ideas, but he said, yeah, that there was a recommendation recommendation was that go and go after the guys, kill, you know, 2,000 people and arrest 20,000 people and put this whole thing to rest. And these people really believe that it's going to end it. And Shaw did not fall for it. He, okay, we can say it was because he was Tarsu or not brave enough, or because that was not in his character, which is good. You know, much of the narrative about the tumultuous final days of the Shah are based in two autobiographies, The Pride and the Fall uh, by Sir Anthony Parsons, who served as the British ambassador to Iran at the time of the revolution, and Mission to Iran, of course, by William Sullivan, the U.S. ambassador to Iran at the time. So today, historians such as Andrew Scott Cooper, we just heard from, raising serious doubts about the accuracy and the motives behind these autobiographies. What, what is your take on Sullivan and Parson and their books? Pretty much based on their uh, personal interest. It's not accurate. You know, we, we need to gather more information from people at the time to come up with a more correct evaluation of what happened in the last two years of the last march because we owe it to the history you know this is, this is a country this is our longest uh, uh, train of uh, kingdom in the world and it ended ended in a sense that nobody thought it would end like this and 
lot of people or some people think that it will come back, you know, with Reza Pahlavi and all of that. You know, realistically, it would not, it would not go back. In no country it has come back. But I, I'm not talking about politics, I'm talking about the reality of history. This has to be evaluated, and both of the books you mentioned have shortcomings in that respect. And in, in final analysis, in my opinion, Shah Kiran, who was a dictator, who actually put the most decent man of the modern time of Iran, Dr. Mossadegh in jail, he was a reformer. He was a reformer. And he, he could have remained a reformer and he would have uh, been remained despite all of these things as a reformer. He missed that chance. And uh, so it's a, it, it, this is another black and white evaluation. This is something that we have to evaluate. And uh, the other last thing I have to say is that Shah was extremely suspicious of foreigners. He really thought many, many times, I mean, you see in the, uh, the, the memoirs of Alam, Alam, that he says that uh, these people brought my father to power and they took him out of the country and they're going to do the same thing to me. He was extremely suspicious of that, uh, suspicious of that and he was not powerful. To build a group of people around him that came from different backgrounds to fight that and that feeling, you know, the, the way he left the country on the Tarmac crying. You know, I was at the time a republic, not Republican in the sense of American, but right, right. But when I saw the King of Iran crying like that, I felt ashamed for my country, for my people. It was like. Uh, Baymans that forced on Iran to separate good portions of Iran from Iran. This was the king of Iran. And me and my father, as people that were absolutely for republic, seeing the king of Iran leave Iran in tears like that, to be honest with you, it broke my heart. Because that's my nation and that guy to that point, is my king. A guy that you helped overthrow. Yeah. But I didn't want him to live like that. You mentioned Mossadegh. And uh, if you don't mind, let me ask you a couple of questions about the about 1953, because I know that's an area of your your expertise. And I- Iranian intellectuals, such as yourself, have long argued that the revolution, in a sense, was inevitable, if if longstanding, uh, as a consequence of the the 1953 coup. Um, just just to push back on that, could it be that the coup was perhaps a defining factor? only within the intellectual circles, many of whom were either nationalists or leftists. I mean, could the coup have had much less significance for the Iranian, uh, the ordinary Iranian? 
Yes, of course. I, I, I'm not one of those uh, uh, proponents of the idea that uh, it was the coup that caused the Islamic Revolution. I, I don't believe in that at all. Uh, that was a terrible, terrible page in our history. It was the biggest mistake of the Shah, and I don't want to go into that. But the point is, it created a new chapter in Iran. The chapter that was opened in Iran uh, after 1920, when you know the Allied forces invaded Iran, and there was some some pseudo democracy in Iran and elections and all of that, was that there could be political debate, and there was, and it was great. That ended in Bistash de Mordad, ended in the coup. Mm-hmm. Now, Shah had a choice. He ended it, he consolidated power, he now could basically build a new society. To some extent, he did. And then, to some extent, he actually went further. He actually created some other issues, other problems, and problems that exist in the countries of Middle East. So the issue of the coup of 1953 has to be examined separately from Iranian revolution. I, uh, I know some people like to link the two together and say that's the cause. It's not the cause. Absolutely it's not the cause. It has nothing to do with each other. But yes, there is an issue that kind of democracy that is started in Iran after the invasion of uh, Iran by Allied forces, it ended in 1953, and nothing came back to it. And that is the biggest issue, that we never saw the signs of the constitutional revolution, and the, the constitution, basically, again, uh, parliament became nothing, and King became, that's it, the ruler, which was the whole issue of the Constitution to end. But that's the whole point, and there was a dialogue that was was lost in the whole culture and the society from uh, in the 1950s, 1960s, actually, I'm sorry, in Iran. Just as a sidebar, the... The, the, the current regime, or the Islamist rulers of Tehran, let's say, they also rely heavily on the, the 1953 coup d'etat in their official accounts to delegitimize the Shah. This occurs to me as it's quite ironic as they openly renounce the late Prime Minister Mossadegh and, and nationalists as well. So what is the root of this contradiction? The root is basically a culture of anti-Americanism, anti Foreigner that that goes back to the uh, middle of the 19th century Iran from the uh, Reuter contract that Iranians actually rebelled against anything that was foreigner and then after 1950-1953 American became the enemy they became the reason that Iran is the way it is and the Shah became the symbol of the American control of Iran. And he was, as they call it, no chara imperialism, no chara things like that. That was it. That American imperialism has taken over Iran so much that we have privilege. Shah became 
the agent of imperialism, agent of the, the West. And the Western, the, the Mullahs use that tremendously, in a sense, uh, capably, which the, the leftists could not do that. And the whole thing was a, was a lie. You know, Shah was not a servant of so-called uh, imperialism. Yes, sure, he was aligned with the West. He was definitely aligned with the United States. But this whole concept that they told him what to do and he would do that, well, that was not true. But that wasn't an issue anymore. The issue was when the movement started, two years before Iranian Revolution, Shah was already agent of the United States. And U.S. was the reason that Iran was in this situation. To this day it is. To this day, U.S. the main enemy. And the Islamists actually use that, not just in Iran, in other countries too, masterfully. And the United States has not been able to respond to that. Realistically speaking, uh, there were more... Uh, friendliness between Iranians and Americans than animosity, but that was created and government could not respond to that and the opposition fell into that and revolution fell into that and realistically speaking Iranian revolution became an anti-imperialist, anti-American movement and we lost it. You know, I'm listening to you and I'm cognizant of the fact that as uh, lucid and logical and and uh, and somewhat passionate as everything you say is that there are people listening in our Iranian community uh, that are going to jump on every <laughs> every line and and or and disagree with it and I want you to I mean I put this to Abbas Milani and to Andrew Scott Cooper as well if you can take off your historian hat for a second and just uh, talk to me as a member of uh, the diaspora like myself and 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 the fact that we are so there is so much partisanship there is so much uh, factionalism, a lot of it based in real emotion and anger and heartbreak um, about this period and, and our collective history. That when somebody, I mean, I can, uh, you know, in, in your case, for example, I can hear somebody saying, well, he's the son of a prominent ally of, uh, of Mossadegh, so uh, that's, that's him. He's influenced by his father's teachings as, as well and, and all that. How do we mend this? How do we mend this instinct to jump into our uh, into different factions um, when when it comes to assessing our own history? I think we have to change the course or discourse. We can never unite on history. We're not supposed to. We cannot create a a political movement, social movement, or any movement based on history, because history is history. And we're supposed to have different assessment of that. Uh, the Iranian intellectuals from all different backgrounds, they should start talking about the future. We have a country that at one time used to produce so much oil that was envy of every other country. We have a practically bankrupt country right now. We have an isolated country. 
very little relationship all over the world. So the point and the question among Iranian intellectuals, thinkers, people that are looking for the uh, future of Iran is, how can we build this future? The issue is not the issue is not coup. The issue is not the analysis of what the Shah was or Reza Shah was or Mossadegh was. Those are extremely important as part of our heritage, as part of our history. But in building a new future, we have to start discussing how can we build Iran again. Just returning to the precipitant for this conversation today and for these conversations we've been having this week on the the summer marking the 40th anniversary of the death of the Shah, if you can zoom out and um, going back to these narratives that played immediately, certainly before and after the revolution about the Shah, about the Pahlavi dynasty, is it fair to say, Mohammed Abini, uh, after 40 years, the record of the last Shah of Iran has been rehabilitated to a certain extent in Iran's national discourse and the discourse of the diaspora, or at least significantly altered? Only because of the uh, things that the Islamic Republic has done. Otherwise, it would, have, would not have been. You, what happened, and we, we should not forget this, there are a lot of good things that were done under Pahlavis, both father and son. But the issue is that we had a revolution. We had the one of the greatest uh, uh, non-violent revolutions in the world. And we created one of the first parliaments in the world, outside of Europe. We passed the laws. Democracy is not something that is built overnight. It takes time. I mean, you look at even the history of the United States or England, especially the United States. You know, it came to a point that there was a civil war. 800,000 people died in that, and it took a lot of time. We were not given the chance of uh, experimenting democracy and finding out how it works. And the most important part of the Iranian constitution was Majlis, the parliament. And Reza uh, Shah called it, called it a tabile stable. And then Mohammad Reza Shah basically after 1953, uh, the coup just absolutely put it aside. And he ruled basically as a king. Did they do some good things? Oh, no question about it. So. My point is, no, the judgment about the Pahlavi dynasty is not over. It has to be reevaluated. It has to be just. It has to be fair. It has to be balanced. And at the same time, it has to be judged against the possibilities of the time. Right. Although, when you say any rehabilitation is based on what came after in terms of the Islamic regime, which many people now look at with disdain and despair, isn't that the point? I mean, isn't that people look back at their history and say, oh, we didn't realize what we had had 
In fact, you hear some of this discourse in the United States now where there's an upcoming election and people will say they are reevaluating the Bush years now because of what we've had with with Trump. Uh, you know, I was an activist against Bush, but it is reframed now. And so this is the way we see the past, isn't it? Through the, the lens of what we are experiencing today? In a very short time, yes. Yes. You know, when you're looking at it in a very short time, yes. But when you are going to build a society for the future, no. You have to look at possibilities. I mean, when you look at the past against another past, and you say that this was the past and this was the other past and which the other past was better than this past, then you are subjecting, you know, you're subjecting yourself to a limit. Uh, But societies are progressing. Uh, you don't have to do that. Uh, we are a proud nation with amazing underground and uh, social geographic you know, possibilities. So many different cultures. Why should we limit ourselves between the choice of this government and the last one? Why can't we say, you know, why don't we build something new? You can use the same thing about this regime. You can look at this regime and say, they built 600 universities. They took, you know, the broadcast to every village, electricity, all of that. But, you know, they did this or that. The point is, our society is doomed to be within possibilities of the past and the past. Or they can look forward. I think we can look forward. We did it. We need to look forward. We need to look at possibilities that are real. That we as a nation, as people, uh, with this history, with this culture, with this kind of abilities, so many intellectuals all over the world, we can build something a lot better than this society that we're living in and the past. So on that note, a final question, and you did allude to this earlier in the interview, but let me ask it directly. In in recent protests in Iran, I'm thinking about last November, especially in the, those, mm-hmm. those, those bloody protests, uh, right. we, we saw what seemed like a growing chorus of chants in the streets calling for the return of the monarchy. From the historic point of view, could a constitutional monarchy be a some kind of natural successor to a theocratic dictatorship? You know, without any bias, I don't think so. It hasn't ever happened, you know, it has not happened in other parts of the world. And the problem is that we don't have the model in Iran. We don't have a period in Iran that the constitution, the monarchy was... Uh, abiding by the constitution except during Ahmad Shah, which everybody called him such a weak, you know, king and promoted Reza Shah. Uh, I don't think so. And and the, the bigger question I have is, why do we need it? I mean, do is, is this a situation that our country needs a king to put the different parts of the society together? I mean, during this Islamic Republic has any part of the country has um, separated. 
I don't think so. I don't think we, I mean, if you can prove to me that a kingdom would be a good way of keeping the country together, I don't have any problem with it. But I don't see any reason for it. I don't see any justification for it. I think Reza Pahlavi could come back and live in one of the castles and be a money-making, you know, king in Iran without any authorities. But in reality, thinking that's going to be a salvage, uh, I don't think so. Let me add something to it that may be a little bit, you know, too much. I don't think Reza Pahlavi has any desire to go back to Iran. I don't think he knew, I don't think, I, I think he knows that there is no room for him. So, the fact that Iran could go back to a constitutional monarchy, my question is why? And how? And who? Mohammed Amini, I'm so uh, grateful for your time today. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, and uh, uh, thank you for participating in this series. Thank you for your patience. And, uh, and uh, I know you haven't been feeling so great, so it's, uh, it's uh, an extra gratitude uh, that you... Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Very well to have you. Merci. Chodafes. That is historian and author of The Time and Life of Ahmed Kasravi, Mohammed Amini. He joined us from Orange County, California today. This is Full Time for Rook today. Thank you to all of those who are uh, have been supporting us, subscribing, spreading the word. Thank you. Thank you to Mo Rahimion and Inshufen for your support of this episode of Rook. Uh, you can reach us on all various platforms, including Telegram now. See you on Monday with Homas Ashar as my guest. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Mizumashi.